Good morning. The reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 28. It's on page 1,838 in the Church Bibles and on the screen. Now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who, are, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each, and, for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Well, thank you, Sue. So if you can... Uh Find the passage and the sermon outline. If you've got a phone, you can point that up there and, or open your Bible on your phone. That'd be great because we'll be moving through the passage. Let's pray. Our loving Father, uh, please enlighten our minds, uh, ignite our hearts to love you more and to walk in your ways as we await Jesus' return. Amen. So we're looking at the theme of Christ's return and some of you may have heard the story of the young guest preacher who was invited to come to another church and speak on Christ's coming. And so he climbed up into the pulpit, it was one of those churches, and he began with his one verse text, which he uh, said dramatically, Behold, I come unto you. But then, of course, his mind went completely empty. And so stalling for time, he decided the wisest thing was to repeat himself. Behold, I come unto you. And he brought his fist down onto the pulpit ledge, and the whole thing shook. Still his mind was blank, so for a third time, he said even louder, behold, I come unto you. But being this well-built young man, he thumped the pulpit ledge with rather more force than he intended. And if you're at Carol's and you saw what I did with that music stand when I was on stage, he did the same. And he brought down the whole lot, the pulpit and himself, smashing down to the ground and into the front row seats with himself landing in the lap of an elderly lady sitting in the front row. And as he looked up into her clear, azure blue eyes, he said to her, I'm so terribly sorry, 
To which she said, don't worry, you already told me three times that you were coming. I was expecting you. <laughs> well, today we come to the eighth time the Apostle Paul has referenced Jesus' return in this short letter to the Thessalonian Christians. So after, we've heard, after they'd heard that they were waiting for the Saviour, Jesus, to rescue them from the coming wrath, <coughs> and they'd been told how to live in light of his coming, and they'd been put straight about what would happen when he comes. You think, well, what else is there to say? Verse 23, and in many ways this is the key to the whole letter. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you only remember one word today, remember this word, blameless. Because that's the difference between waiting for Christ's return with fear and trepidation and waiting with confidence and with joy. That's the difference, knowing that you will be found blameless. You see, it's one thing to be forgiven and to be acceptable to God through Jesus. It's another thing to believe that on that day you'll be found blameless when you lock eyes with the Lord Jesus. In this last section, the apostle tells us how we can be found blameless. And there's three things that we're to do, and there's one key thing that God will do. It's a bit like um, if you planned for a journey, suppose you were going to Sydney, there were things to work on. You need to get your tickets, you need to get your accommodation, you need to work out transport. Then only at the last minute you realize that someone else is taking you there and they're paying for the whole lot. It's a bit like this. There's three things for us to work on as a church as we move forward to being blameless. That's verses 12 to 22. And then there's one key thing that God will do to ensure that we will be blameless, verses 23 to 28. So of the three things that we're to do, the first one is regarding leadership. He says in verse 12, respect those who work hard among you. Now, we know from Acts 14, the Apostle Paul's priority was to appoint leaders in every church that he had planted. And we also know that the Thessalonian church was very young. So he'd only been in Thessalonica three weeks. And that might explain why he doesn't mention any titles like overseer or elder. He simply says, I want you to respect, literally know, those who work hard in the Lord, those, sorry, those over you in the Lord who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you, verse 12. Now, why does he say this? Well, because it's a very shrewd key to progress. Uh, he instructs us how to deal with our spiritual leaders. Why does he do this? Because for our Christian growth and maturity, you actually need to keep coming to church with an open heart. That's why. We need regular spiritual input and encouragement uh, from the word that our leaders bring, and we need to be in a frame of mind to receive that word and we need to be accepting of those who speak personally in a pastoral role into our lives as they bring the word of God specifically to bear in our lives. And yet you'll know one of the key reasons why people might choose to leave a church is because they've become disgruntled with their leaders. And so we need instruction on, as, as Christians on how to treat our spiritual leaders. Now I'm not just talking about how you, sh you should treat me, I've got spiritual leaders, right? So I've got a network pastor over me. Do I like him? Wrong question. Is that important? I mean, is it? Yeah. Is it? 
There's things to learn, which the Lord will unfold before you. Okay. <laughs> that is, how am I going to relate to people who are over me in the Lord? People who preach um, the word of God, like Cam did to me when I was sitting under it two, week, two weeks ago. Okay, he was over me at that point. How will you relate to people who are over you in the Lord? If you take your cue from the world, we're going to like or despise our leaders depending on whether they're doing things that we want. If we take our cue from ourselves, we'll treat our spiritual leaders on the basis of their looks or their tastes or their personality. He's old, so I'll respect him. He's young, so we'll like him. He's funny, so we'll love him. But that kind of assessment can also work the opposite way if a leader is lacking. And that can retard our spiritual growth. So dealing with our spiritual leaders is actually crucial for our Christian progress. Now, of course, when the Apostle Paul speaks to leaders, and he writes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and other parts in his other letters, he lays upon them a very high responsibility. He says your character is to be beyond criticism, you're to be disciplined, you're to be committed to the word of God and to prayer, you're to be patient with everyone, you're to drive out error if there's error, you're to warn the ungodly, you're not to be lazy, you can't be addicted to drink, you can't be in it for the money. You've got to be kind to everyone. It's a very high charge he gives the leaders, right? But here he's talking to church members, okay? And you'll know that if you've ever been a leader of any kind of group, how your role can be helped or hindered by the attitude and behavior of the people in the group. That person, that obstinate member who always pushes back, always challenging, never accepting, it can drain all your emotional energy, make the task very, very hard. It could break the group, it could break you. And so as members, we can make a leader's job pleasant and effective or unpleasant and ineffective. And that's the clue to Paul's instruction in verse 12. We're not to put them on a pedestal or worship them. Goodness, no. But we're not to despise them or reject them. Instead, we need to know how to respect them because of their hard work. Literally, the work is them growing tired or weary. As they are over you, literally as they stand before you, and that could mean standing before you as I'm standing before you now, bringing the word of God to bear. Or it could be that they're standing before you to represent you, even to intercede for you and to pray for you. And then verse 12, as they admonish and warn you. Now many people have no idea what the work of spiritual leadership involves. Um, I remember this embarrassing moment for my mother when I was a young boy in a boys brigade and I had to interview a local church pastor to get a proficiency badge on, you know, to put on my, my uniform shoulder. And I, mum set up this interview, this kind man came to our house, and I said to him, what's your real job? <laughs> you know, from Monday to Friday, because you only work one day a week, don't you, in the church? <laughs> mum was just, she was mortified with embarrassment that I'd, I'd answered like this. Now, to get your head around what a pastor does, I want you to imagine that you're given 100 people to look after, so your family, your church, your church family is 100 people. Your job is to care for them. So you've got to be able to answer, how are their souls with God? Are they right with God? Do they know that? Are they being taught? Are they being discipled? Are they being trained? Are they sick at the moment? Are they sad? Are they wandering away from God? Are they being silly and playing in the muck of sin 
and need some sort of correction. How can you help them grow towards maturity? So there you go, you've got 100 names, off you go. And you begin to realize straight away, it's fairly messy, actually. <laughs> um, it's complicated, but if you had 100 people who you're in charge of to say, look, we understand your role, and we're going to be helpful and cooperative, that makes the job so much more straightforward, okay? So spiritual leadership is this massive privilege, but it's also a massive responsibility. And those who serve Christ and those who serve you, and it's not just me, it's anyone who walks, works hard among you, who stands before you, who admonishes you, they need your help to be effective. So make the job as easy as possible for your leaders. Secondly, second thing we're to do regarding is regarding fellowship. The first one, leadership, now fellowship, verses 14 to 18. This is especially how we deal with one another in church. So you come on a Sunday, there are, what, 140 people here or something like that. You come, go to a small group on a Wednesday night or a Friday and there's a much smaller group of people. How do you conduct yourself among the believers? That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And again, this is a key for progress because he says, we're not meant to meet aimlessly. Chances are that most of you came here fairly willingly, um, mostly punctually, more or less. Um, but chances are that many of us came without any real thought about what we're doing. Well, Paul says you're meant to come purposefully, actually. So when we come together, we're not to come like a consumer because this isn't a business, it's not an entertainment place. It's our family gathering. We have to come saying, Lord, use me to be helpful to other people. And even if we come feeling flat and needy and empty and then as we, by the grace of God, cross the room to connect with someone standing by themselves and perhaps we're feeling like we are pouring out the last drop of energy that we have, so often you'll know it's then that the Lord supplies what we need and he uses us. Power in weakness. I know what it's like to come to church and feel like I've got nothing to give. And as if the easiest thing would be to escape very quickly afterwards. But there needs to be that attitude of heart which says, Lord, make me useful because maybe I can say, maybe I can do something which under your good hand will be effective for someone else. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. In chapter five, verse 14, he says, you also have a job to do. You've got to warn the idol. Now he said in verse 12, that's what the leader does, but in verse 14, he's saying, you also do it. It's a plural command. He says, you've got to warn those who are lazy. The assumption is, spiritually speaking, uh, we're not meant to be lazy. But if we're honest, we'll know that sometimes the reason why we just li we're limping along spiritually is frankly because we're lazy. In which case, you need more than just encouragement. You need something to jolt you out of that and really something stronger, which will be a timely word of warning spoken in love and it has to be in love. Would you rather come to church and everyone just please you, or would you be grateful when you need it occasionally for someone to steer you back into a better way? I hope the second. 
I hope we don't just come here only to be patted on the back. But laziness isn't the only reason someone might be going nowhere in their Christian life because in verse 12 he says, encourage the timid. Literally the small-souled person. The person with a small soul. The person who is frail. Speak close to them. Draw tenderly towards them. And then he says, help the weak. That person who knows that they've failed, he says, help them. Because you know what it's like to fail. And if you know what it's like to receive Christ's mercy, then you can remind them that mercy is available for them too. So three reasons why someone may not be progressing. There's idleness or laziness, there's timidity and there's weakness and each requires a different pastoral response and it takes wisdom to work out which one will, hurt, will help each person out of their rut. You can't just come in like a bulldozer with a one-size-fits-all approach. And because it needs wisdom to work it out, that means you need to be patient to be able to listen which is why in verse 14 he says, be patient with everyone. Be long-suffering. Now notice what this means. When we come to church and everyone, everyone is still in need of progress, we're all uh, works in progress, we've got to try with God's help to be appropriate to every person we're speaking to because sometimes the person you're speaking to will need to be warned and sometimes they'll need to be strengthened and sometimes they'll need to be helped. And to work out which is which requires us listening, which means we'll need patience. And the reason we need to be like this is because all of us are unfinished people. Therefore, verse 15, don't pay back. Churches uh, can be very painful places. Sometimes we can experience hurt, sometimes we can be the one who, ones who are hurting. And the Apostle Paul says, look, if you're tempted to exercise revenge, put those ideas away. And then in verses 16 to 18, he says there are three reminders that your attitude in the fellowship is important. You can have a huge impact in church by verse 16, being joyful always, verse 17, praying continually, and verse 18, giving thanks in all circumstances. It's a bit like a Santa sack, isn't it, pulling out wonderful presents. <laughs> um, what does it mean to be joyful always? Well, it doesn't mean that you're to be happy all the time because joy is linked to what we know. Joy comes from knowing whose you are, from knowing your standing with God, from knowing how secure you are and knowing where you're going. Joy is not circumstantial. Joy is a, to take an example from the Bible, it's a young David who's homeless and on the run from King Saul um, life is not going well for him on the face of it. He's uncomfortable, he's in distress, he's on the run, he's being hunted down. But joy is David saying, and he says this in the Psalms in this context, um, well, I don't know exactly where I'm headed physically, but I know whose I belong to, to the Lord, and I know how I stand with him, that he's with me and he's for me, and I know how secure I am because he's promised to remain with me and I know where I'm going, meaning my future, and therefore that means my present is secure. So be joyful always, pray continually. He doesn't say, doesn't mean pray all the time, that would be impossible. <laughs> he means pray any time. 
So in your life, you're walking with Christ, you're walking in fellowship with Christ, and at any time, you can lift up your voice with a thank you or a request or a confession. Finally, he says, give thanks in all circumstances. He doesn't say give thanks for all circumstances. He says in the middle of all circumstances, we can be thankful because everything is in the backdrop of God's good purposes and his relationship with me. Now, it's wonderful that the Apostle Paul can say this, isn't it? Because if anyone deserved to be able to say rejoice occasionally, you know, pray occasionally, it's the Apostle Paul. Instead, he says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks always. So let me summarize where we've come. These are the things we're to do. Respect the leadership. That means you'll stay part of a church and you'll keep progressing. You're intentional in your fellowship when you're at church, then you can help one another progress. And the third thing that we can do is regarding our worship. Leadership, fellowship, worship. Meaning how we engage with God together when we're together. So from verses 19 and following, Paul helps us in this. He says, don't put out, don't quench the Spirit's fire. Don't treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good, throw out the bad. So as we come together, we've got to make sure that we're not despising the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet at the same time, we've got to be discerning so we're not led down unhelpful paths. So what's he saying? He's saying, well, beware the anti-supernaturalist, right, who acts as if God's absent and unnecessary because church is only ever about efficiencies and programs and sticking to time, and maybe for five seconds we might pray. He says that Christianity is lifeless. Do not despise the work of the Spirit. On the other hand, he says, beware of the random supernaturalist, that person who attributes every idea that pops into their head as a thought inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then uh, the Spirit becomes a genie inside their head who does whatever they want. That Christianity often becomes very selfish and vain. Instead, he says, no, there's a real work that God's doing amongst you, and don't ignore it. Don't try to make the church like a business you control. It's not your business. You don't control it. And also don't despise God's timely words. That's my definition of prophecy, timely words. When he talks of prophecies in the Thessalonian church, Paul can't mean Old Testament prophets because their words were added to scripture. He can't mean apostles because their words were added to scripture. But timely words are words which are in line with the word of God as we've got it. And in the first century, these were often used by God before the Bible was put together. And they still may be used by God in the 21st century to guide the church. But if such a word came, the Apostle Paul says you've got to test everything. Test it according to scripture, test it over time. And keep the good. Someone might come up with an idea which really blesses the church. Well, is it in keeping with scripture? And watch and just see how it develops over time. Someone else might come up with an idea that's really going to divide our church. Paul says, throw it out. So there are three things we can do to keep on the road towards blamelessness lead, um, regarding leadership, fellowship, and worship. But the last point, and this is the big one, this is the key to progress, verses 23 to 28. This is the thing that God will do. Yes, there are things we must do, but that's only half the picture. 
The Bible does say, yes, there are things to do because we're responsible. There is real sin committed by real people and real good done by real people. But as well as our responsibility, God is also sovereign. His plans are going to come to pass. And in the Bible, human um, responsibility and divine sovereignty always work together, even though it does your head in. So that's why in the verses we've just looked at, the Apostle Paul talks about human responsibility, verses, um, what is it, 13 to 22. And in these last verses, he talks about God's sovereignty. And you'll see in verse 23, a prayer that he offers. He says, may God sanctify you through and through. In other words, may God get you to the end in a brilliant shape. And the priority here is that you or I would be perfect in holiness. That's the end. That's what the Apostle Paul prays. May God finish the work that he began in you. If he's begun the work in you, he's going to finish it. And so he prays in line with that. May God finish the job and make you like Christ. Now you'll notice what he's called in verse 23, the God of peace. He's the God of shalom, which talks about peace in relationships, human relationships and with him. Paul prays that God would make you like Christ through and through in your relationships, in your relationship with him. That he would make you literally and finally whole. Now, if you want to know how totally God is going to do it, verse 23, it's going to be in your spirit, it's going to be in your soul, and it's going to be in your body. Everything, every part of you is going to be transformed. You name a part of you, God will transform it. There's going to be complete transformation. And that's why C.S. Lewis said, if you could see the Christian today as they will be at the end, when they've been made like Christ, you might be tempted to fall down and worship. Because God, for his own glory and by his own grace, has planned to turn people into the likeness of the character of Christ. It's got nothing to do with our own ability. It's certainly not something we deserve, but it's what God has promised to do. Isn't that heartening? So at the coming of Jesus, verse 23, Paul says, you'll be blameless. Of course you'll be forgiven, but you'll be also transformed and made like him. How encouraging. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, when we see him, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And this lovely verse, verse 24, which I think is the key to the letter, Paul says God will do it. He will do it because he's faithful. So you see what the apostle is saying. He's saying take your part, help the leadership, help the membership, be discerning about the worship. But he's saying God will do his part. And therefore this is a cause for extreme joy, I think, when we get to the end of the letter. His final words, verse 25, he says pray for us. Why does he say that? because he himself is still a work in progress. He needs to be sanctified through and through as well. And then he says, greet all the people with a holy kiss. I could have a whole sermon on that. That was very interesting to read about this week. But translated to our context in Australia today, I think it means when you meet, do say hello to people, do it in a kind way and do it in a godly way. Verse 27, Read this to all the brothers. He says, I want to make sure everyone hears it. And verse 28, he says, grace to you. Because grace is the key to the whole plan of God. In the ancient world, you know, people would finish a letter by saying, 
be strong. And it's still, it's still said often today, be strong. The Christian has a much more wonderful farewell. Grace to you. The God of grace who has begun a good work in you through Christ, he will carry it on to completion so that you'll be blameless before him. We've got a contribution to play in the present. Help the leaders be constructive to the members, be discerning about the worship, but in the end, he who called you is faithful and he will do it. And that's the end. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you will do it. Thank you. And therefore we pray, because you are going to complete your work in us, we'll do it now. Do it in our midst. And in regards to uh, our attitude towards leaders and to one another's and to worship, help us to think your thoughts and act your ways. But we, we do look forward to that work, that transformative work of your Holy Spirit in the lives of each one of us to make us more like Jesus. And we look forward to finishing, to you finishing that work. What a great day it will be when Jesus comes. Amen.